Good morning. Turn to the book of Colossians. It's great to be here. I had not realized it's been a while. I can't remember the last time we were here. Um, when Ty asked me what I was preaching on in a text and I gave it to him, I still wasn't quite organized. But it's amazing how the songs, the verses, the prayers, and I'll never forget the first time we came here, my, all three of our kids went, wow, what a cool church. Uh, y'all have lots of music <laughs> and instruments, and it's, and it's really great. And I, we, Connie and I have always loved how you have doctrinal worship songs giving um, testimony to the great hymns of the faith, but also playing a new song to the Lord, uh, like the psalm says, skillfully. It says, uh, actually, the word psalm, psalms means to pluck skillfully, like a guitar or a lyre, a lyre, but uh, back then. Anyway, uh, you guys have been a great blessing to us. We, uh, the Lord has, is good. Um, we haven't, I, I had forgotten that I haven't been here since our second son, Blake, took his own life. And your church really ministered to us in 2017 at Blake's visitation. Uh, Cindy and Kent Elliott came. And Cindy came up to Connie and said, you don't know me, but our church supports you. And we've been through what you have gone through, what you're going through now. And Cindy and Kent really ministered to us. We went together to the grief share, which is in that funeral home over on the other side of I-20 for about six months. And uh, we got together and had dinner and lunch sometimes. And Connie's been uh, keeping up with Cindy a lot. So we appreciate all your prayers and support for us. Um, we used to live in Turkey. For those of you who are new, we ministered among Iranian refugees. And so we had to learn a little Turkish. And we also learned Farsi, the language of Iran. We learned that better. That was the team's focus when we first went. But we've never been to Iran. They would not even allow an American to be a tourist at the time we were uh, starting off. And we were on a church planning team. We learned Farsi. We actually had to come home because uh, our second son, Blake, had some kind of problem later. We th at first, we thought it might be autism or Asperger, what we later found out, like what they call Asperger's, and now they don't even use that anymore. <laughs> now there's, everyone's on the uh, autism spectrum, they say. But we didn't know, and we went all over for um, 
testing, and finally they said he has a developmental delay. So uh, we were, to make a long story short, we were part of an ethnic Iranian church here in Atlanta uh, from 1996 after we returned until 2008. And I was going all over Atlanta pretty much four or five or six times a week visiting, teaching, discipling. And at one time, there was 120 former Muslims, Iranians, who had turned away from Islam, repented, and turned to Christ. Now, not all of them, when you, when you do church planning among a new group uh, and you're discipling people, not everyone who claims to be a believer is a believer, and the Lord has His way of uh, showing us who the true believers are, those that persevere. And we're still in contact with many of these folks, um, some of these folks in Atlanta. Many go to American churches now. But I, I turn the work over to the other Iranian elder, the pastor that I worked with, and I still work with him. He's gone to Turkey with me a couple of times. Um, and uh, it's a little house group now. That actually, they had to move to Cartersville. Uh, because you have to find a host who's willing to host the house church. Um, and so pray for that group. Uh, and I talk about these things in our prayer letters. In 2018, I went to um, Greece, Athens, and Turkey, and Cyprus, and uh, I thought I was going to die in Athens. I fell down these steps. <laughs> I crashed my head when I was falling. You know, in the old parts of Europe and Turkey, the steps are really thin, and I'm, my feet are too big, and I fall all the time <laughs> when I'm in these old places. When I first went to Turkey, I would fall all the time because they don't have nice, smooth sidewalk. Everything's bumpy and old, and uh, so... Anyway, I bumped my head right there and fell down about 10 or 12 steps and hit my head again on the ground, and I thought I was going to die. I really did. I thought either I'm going to be paralyzed or die. And uh, later I sent a picture to Connie. <laughs> I was black and blue all over. The Lord had mercy. I'm amazed at how hard my head is right there. And it hit at the right place that, you know, I went to the doctors and uh, we waited like six hours in the emergency room in Athens, Greece. Uh, and they said, you're, you have a fracture on your nose, but you're okay. And I was like, wow. I mean, it was shocking. I thought that that was it. But the, the Lord uh, was with me. <laughs> and uh, my friend Muhammad, who's my colleague, he's a Christian. He keeps his old name, Muhammad. And uh, the Korean guy that was with me, they stayed with me. And then later, after I got through all the tests and all the um, issues, all the checking me out in the hospital, I mean, it was amazing to see. There was like 200 people in the emergency waiting, and some people had been in car accidents, and it was really shocking to see. So finally, we... We got a hotel later, and I started crying really amazingly deep because I said, thank you, Muhammad, for staying with me. 
And I can't remember the other brother's name from Korea. I said, because our son Blake, when he died, he was all alone. And we uh, have had to deal with that and suicide. And Pastor Butch's sermon was very helpful. Uh, the sermon he gave uh, for Daniel Elliott. And many other things were very helpful to sustain us. I cried every day for a year and a half. Uh, I could do my work when I would concentrate on work or duties, but during downtime, alone time, visiting his grave, lots of tears and crying, repentance, deeper levels of repentance, deeper levels of lament. And so... I don't really know what I'm trying to say about all that, but just to give you an update of the lessons and the struggle uh, that we have been through. Um, so we were ready to go. I was ready to go to Turkey and Cyprus again in March of last year. And Connie and I met with our elders and gave a big report, two and a half hours. And at the end, one of our elders said, Ken, are you still going to Turkey and Cyprus? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, no, you're not. President Trump just shut down all the uh, travel <laughs> from Europe. And I went, what? So I had to spend a couple of days working with Delta. But fortunately, they have given me a credit till 2022. So we are hopeful that we'll be able to go back and visit the people that we have taught and discipled in the Lord uh, and so your, your prayers and your gifts and your support, your encouragement, um, just as your pastor just said, uh, helps us um, reach out to Iranians. Iranians are very disillusioned with Islam. They're disillusioned with their government. They've been turning away from Islam for the last 40 years. And many were been refugees in Turkey and other countries, but Turkey was the big place that most of the refugees would come. And now, of course, they're all over, all over Europe. They're trying to find freedom and a new life. And it's been a great opportunity to uh, share the gospel and do evangelism and discipleship because they're very open. Uh, they're attracted to Christianity. We just read from the book of Zechariah. Iranians love it when they discover that their ancient kings are mentioned in the Bible. Uh, we say Darius, but the proper way to say his name is Dariush. Dariush Kabir. Darius the Great. Now that's a different Darius than Darius the Mede in Daniel, but it comes from the same culture and roots. And uh, we love to, you know, when I... I when I found out uh, how do we say Xerxes properly, Chashar Yasha is the proper way to say his name. And Ahashuerish uh, or Artaxerxes is Ardishir. And Cyrus is Kurosh or Cyrus. And Iranians really love that. When they read the Bible, many have said they started there because they were interested in looking at that. And many have made this comment. They said, the God of Islam doesn't mention our culture or our kings in the Quran. 
So we like the Bible because the Bible mentions our great kings and our great uh, empire of those days. Uh, so let's go to Colossians. Thank you for your prayers and support. Uh, since the shutdown, I have been um, on Zoom with Iranians sometimes three or four times a week. I just taught, one of the guys I taught uh, for four years in Turkey now has his own group that he's teaching, and he asked me to come teach. And it was such a blessing to meet new believers who are being discipled uh, in Christ. And he wanted me to teach on how to interpret the Bible properly and some of the principles of context and book and then through the whole, all the scriptures. And I taught on James chapter 2 and how that ties in with justification by faith and going back to Genesis 15 and 22 and showing the whole, how it all fits together. Um, because all 66 books of the Bible are inspired by God. That means there's no contradiction because God cannot lie. And I love that verse in Titus 1-2. That's one of the verses I, I make the Iranians memorize for the hermeneutics class where he says, God who cannot lie. God who is unable to lie. And many of the Iranians have said to me, what do you mean? Because in Islam, Allah can lie if he wants to. He said, he, he can't. He has the power. And I said, no, God cannot do anything that contradicts his nature, that contradicts his character. And they love that. And they go, wow. And so pray for these Iranians. They're uh, attracted to the morality in the Bible. They're attracted to the love of God in the Bible because Islam does not have that. They're attracted to the character of Christ and what he did and his suffering. And he suffered unjustly uh, in his life and on the cross. And so, uh, yeah. Um, I hope I can be organized. Pray for me. <laughs> uh, let's get to the Scriptures. Colossians. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 1 to 8, and then chapter 3, 11. And we'll see, how, see where, how the Lord leads us. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Notice that phrase, the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on your behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. Notice the Trinitarian 
theology of this passage. Verse 3, thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son are mentioned. And then verse 8, um, he has, Epaphras has informed us of your love in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God converts people and creates love in our hearts. It is only God, the Spirit, that gives us love so that we can love others. And then look at chapter 3, verse 11. This is the verse that really has drawn me over the past several years to study the book of Colossians more deeply. Uh, in Colossians 3, how he, he says, beginning in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So Paul begins by thanking God for the work that God has done in an, as a specific area, Colossae. I'll never forget going to Hierapolis and Laodicea. I think it was the year 2000 with my colleague David Mead at the time with Propempo. And some pastors, and we got to see Laodicea and Hierapolis are mentioned in the, at the end of Colossians, uh, verse 13 to 16. These, uh, anyway, we were there and we said, where is Colossae? Because we knew it was close by. And they said, it's about 10, 10 miles up that way. They said, but it's not worth it to go there. There's nothing there. There's nothing left. <laughs> but there's a lot of ancient ruins in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And it's very interesting. So the Apostle Paul is in prison. Chapter 4, verse 3, he says, um, Pray for me that, I may, that a door may open up for the word that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. And then, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. So, the Colossians and Philippians and Ephesians and Philemon are four letters called the prison epistles. And these were written at the same time when Paul is in prison at the end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28. And when he says to the church at Colossae, uh, verse chapter 4, uh, verse 15, he says, Greet the brethren who are in the Laodicea, who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. So he's talking about house churches in the first three centuries. Uh, this was the main way that the church existed, was in house churches. And when, verse 16, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. This is probably the same letter as Ephesians. 
Uh, we don't have a letter that says the, uh, the epistle to the Laodiceans. And we know from textual variants, the oldest copies of the book of Ephesians, the two Ephesus is left blank. So the book of Ephesians and Colossians really work together to give a full theology of the church, both the universal church and the local church. And these two books are amazing how it, how it opens up and teaches us about the church. In chapter 1, verse 18, he's, is that great section on exalting who Christ is. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. Um, cha- uh, on down to chapter, uh, in the same chapter, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, there's nothing lacking in Christ's atonement or afflictions or suffering. There's nothing lacking in the power or the worth of the atonement or his afflictions. The only thing lacking is that we haven't presented his sufferings to all the nations yet. This is what Paul means here. That by going and preaching the gospel and sharing uh, into new areas, the sufferings that come for that are filling up what is lacking. The only thing lacking is that we, the church has not yet gone to all the nations, all the people groups, all the cultures. Uh, so... Colossians is about the church, and then back to chapter 1. So what really drew me was this chapter 3, verse 11, because this verse is really, in the context, is really helpful in dealing with all of the false ideas, the false doctrines of critical race theory and wokeness and intersectionality. Because when he says, put on the new self who's been created, he's, he's talking corporately to the believers. The Scriptures mean individually, you're a new creature in Christ, but also the new self is also expressed in the local church. And he says, put on the new self, he's saying, Get with it, believers, and love one another, tolerate one another, pray for one another, forgive one another. Um, He goes through that later and put on love, uh, which is the perfect bond of unity. But he's saying here, when he says at the end, after he lists, there's no more Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. I used to think, okay, I understand the second phrase, in all, 
That is, Christ is in all kinds of believers. If you're born again, if you're a believer in Christ, He is in all kinds of people. Uh, This is very clear. He doesn't mean every single individual in the world. He means all kinds of nations and cultures and peoples. Uh, Revelation 5, 9 is very key where the Apostle John says he saw the Lamb slain standing at the right hand of him who sits on the throne, and he's worthy to break the seals and to open the book. And because he was slain and he purchased, redeemed for God by his blood, people out from every nation and tribe and language and people. And so this passage fits and Christ is in all, all the believers. Okay, I understood that. But then before that, when it says Christ is all, for years I was wondering, what does this mean? Christ is all. And I used to think, well, he's just repeating the same thing, that he's in all kinds of people. (laughs) I think we can take it two ways. Christ is all, meaning when we love each other in the church, apparently in this local church in Colossae, There were both Greeks and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians. They were considered the worst barbarians, the most wild uh, by the Romans of that day. Uh, They were probably from what is today the Ukraine or parts of uh, Central Asia. Uh, But it's, you know, it's so good to see old movies that try to give us a flavor of what our ancestors were like, like the movie Braveheart and how rough the the Scots and the the English were. And I remember my dad used to always say, or, you know, he was really proud of being Scottish. And he said, the Romans couldn't conquer us and all that stuff because we were wild. You know, that's why Paul wrote about the Galatians. Galatians is related to the word Gaul, which is the ancient... Gaelic area of what's now France, and they had a great migration of those people over into central, what is today central Turkey, and they were crazy people. Uh, The Romans thought these are the weirdest people because they would put uh, chalk in their hair and make horns, and and they were naked and stuff, and then they would do uh, psychological warfare. And so the Romans and the Greeks said, these... Europeans, these Goths and these Visigoths and these Galatians, and these people are really tribal warriors and really backward. And the scriptures are telling us Christ is all. That is, Christ is demonstrated when we love one another from other cultures, but also Christ is all we need, which we sang about. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. I'm so glad you picked that, Ty, to go with today's message. Um, Christ is our life. It relates to other phrases in the Scriptures. When we, and, and you've heard the phrase, Lord God, you are my all in all. What does that mean? You are my all fulfillment or all that is necessary for all my ultimate needs. 
And this, this is saying that ethnicities and social classes and economic classes do exist, and we can't ignore that. But it's saying the higher identity is your identity in Christ if you're a believer. And there is total unity in the body of Christ, the church. We have been forgiven in Christ, chapter 2, verse 13, having been forgiven of all our transgressions. The Scriptures never say, because of these passages, it never says, look at other people and their history and who oppressed who. This is a bad uh, category because everyone has been oppressed sometime in the past. I'm amazed at the agenda nowadays, uh, the, the cultural Marxists, the, mar- the modern Marxists. It's like they don't even know history of all the different wars and conquerings and kingdoms and empires that conquered one another. It's amazing how they just forget that when they talk about this modern stuff, this white privilege stuff, and uh, it's ridiculous. The answer for the world is Christ Himself. And we have to be willing to share in an appropriate way with others the gospel. And if the suffering comes, we have to have the same attitude that Paul had in chapter 1, verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, that in my flesh, on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So that's kind of an overview of what drew me into the book of Colossians. Um, now, the first path, our main passage as far as a paragraph. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. I see here there's three aspects of this passage. The power of the gospel, the word of truth. The power, the process of how the gospel goes out, or the process of the word of truth. And then the people. So that came together for me as I was praying and struggling and and studying the power, the process, the people. The power of the gospel when it goes to a new area. By the way, uh, even though there's no church uh, left in Colossae today, there's no church in Laodicea or Hierapolis. And later Islam came. This is one of the big reasons why I was so curious about church history and how Islam conquered these areas. Those, the seven churches in Revelation, uh, there's nothing left in these areas, or Galatia. Uh, and so, but the Scriptures are saying, the, the Scriptures say, basically it teaches that local churches can disappear. God in His judgment uh, took the lampstands away Uh, Revelation chapter 2. I am coming to you unless you repent and I will take away your lampstand unless you repent. And so the church is not just a building. There's many buildings that 
liberal theology holds today. There's many buildings of false ritualistic churches where there's probably no believers inside of them. Uh, people ask me, well, what about those, those churches that are still around in Europe after I taught on what happened to them in Turkey? Well, their lampstand is also gone. If they don't have the gospel, then they, if they're just this building full of people uh, that are full of false doctrine that don't believe in the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or the Trinity or the resurrection from the dead, and they think homosexuality is okay and it's not a sin, uh, these are not churches. These are false churches. Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy has lots of giant buildings, but it is a false religion. And so the task that the Scriptures teach in the Great Commission is every generation is responsible to preach the gospel. When I first started going to Turkey and I was sharing our um, vision, uh, some people said to me, well, Turkey already had the gospel. No, they didn't. I mean, the land did, and the Byzantine people, the Greek people, the Armenian people did in first century. But later, when the Muslims came, they basically, the jihads, the, the, uh, the wars of Islam, the harb, that's how they say war, and jihad is the striving. Uh, basically, the Muslims killed all the men, or most of the men, and took the women as their wives. So the people today, and in fact, many Iranians have admitted to me, they won't admit it up front at first, but when I become their friends, they'll say, yeah, I'm like one-third Arab, one-third Turk. Uh, they almost never admit <laughs> one-third Arab. But every, I've had a few people go, yeah, after we look at the hit, after they're believers and then they're willing to be honest. Uh, yeah, because they, the Arabs... Uh, attacked Persia, and it took them 300 years to subjugate them from the 600s into the 900s and 1000s AD. So what's really great about uh, this principle is look in Ephesians 3. This is uh, my friend David Mead's favorite verse, chapter 3, verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So it's through the church, through a true church, through the church that is spreading out in history. The gospel rebukes the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. It rebukes the evil angels, the demons. And it demonstrates the manifold wisdom of God to the good angels. And then go on down later, look at verse 21. To him, this is Ephesians 3, 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. So if we are, we are Protestants, we do not believe the church blinked off with Constantine or after the first century or after John died, and then it blinked back on with Luther. That is not the proper way to understand history. A lot of 
evangelical Protestants think that way. Uh, yes, the church was full of corruption, and Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and others stood against them. It was at the Council of Trent later, the reaction against the doctrines of the Reformation, the Council of Trent from 1545 to 1563, when it formally anathematized justification by faith alone, that's when the Roman Catholic Church became a false religion, a false church. And so that's why this verse is so important. In the church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations. So the church is going to exist in all generations. And it's interesting, every warning to the churches in Revelation where he says, watch out, beware. But at the end, he says, to the one who perseveres, basically. To the one who perseveres. The true believers are the individuals in those churches. So, back to Colossians 1. The pow- we see the power of the gospel. Where the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is very interesting. He doesn't say, we thank you, Colossians, because out of your own free will and out of your own mind and out of your own ingenuity and your own efforts and your own knowledge and your own um, talent, your own personality, you realized and you uh, believed in Christ. That's not what he says. He's giving thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And what he's saying is your faith in Christ Jesus, you had to choose, but you could only choose because God first chose you and opened your heart and your mind. We see here three aspects of the power of, of the word of truth. Verse 5, the word of truth, the gospel, the power of the word of truth. That is, the word of truth, the gospel, creates faith, creates true faith because the Holy Spirit behind the scenes works in people's hearts. We see this in Acts 16, 14, where it says Lydia was in Philippi And it says, the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she could respond to the things that Paul was preaching. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, just as God has said, light shall shine out of darkness. He's quoting from Genesis 1, 3, let there be light. And he's putting it in different words. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He's saying it's God that did it. Notice this phrase, the word of truth. Look over at James. He uses this phrase in James 1, 18. In the exercise of his will, it's God's will, not our free will. <laughs> Left to our free will, we choose sin and selfishness, and we're in bondage to our sins. 
But this says, so James agrees with Colossians, the unity of the theology of every book in the Bible, by his will, by God, in the exercise of God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. The wonderful harmony of the scriptures. The power of God, back to Colossians 1, the power of God took away the heart of stone, Ezekiel 36 says, took away the blindness, took away the slavery to sin so that, and, and God drew us so that we could repent and believe. The power of God, faith, under the power of God, faith. Secondly, love. He says, I thank God for the love which you have for all the saints. Verse 4. Back to Colossians 1, verse 4. So he's basically saying the faith that you have, that's justification. And the result of true justification is you have love for others. You've been changed. You're, you're, being, you're sanctified and you're being sanctified. And you are to grow in that love. Love for other believers, the saints, and loving your neighbor as yourself by evangelism and outreach and patience and explaining and be, being willing to suffer. The second power of God as the gospel goes forth is sanctification and love, creating love in us. I'll never forget the Iranians all these years have said, the hardest thing is to forgive someone who hurt me. I can't forgive the government of Iran. I can't forgive them for their torture, for their evil. And they have struggled with that. And I remember one guy, a mullah came to our church one time. A mullah means like a Shiite, that's the Shiite word for uh, a cleric in the Shiite Islam. We did not Invite him. Our guest speaker invited him because he ran into him. And in their culture, they have to invite you. And this guy came. And our people, the, the Iranians were shocked because he came in his mullah clothes and his ammameh. Uh, that means the turban. And uh, half of our people left. They were afraid. And the people that stayed, uh, I'll take up too much time, but... I just now thought of this. I, we have an open time of prayer. And one guy said, and I won't say it in Farsi, but he said, Lord, thank you that you speak to us in our own language, Farsi. And he didn't force us to learn Arabic. He was telling the mullah off, the Islamic guy. <laughs> it was not good, but it revealed a lot of what's going on. And another guy said the same thing, and uh, then later another guy said, I want to take that. Why did you let that guy come to our church? I want to take him and cut him up with scissors slowly. I said, wow. And I said, man, you got to deal with the bitterness. You have to learn to forgive. And, and in one of the passages in Luke 17 where, it's, where Jesus says, if they keep coming, if they sin against you and keep coming to you and say, I repent and I please forgive me. Jesus keeps saying, keep on forgiving. And the Iranians said, that's too hard. How can that be? And the next verse is, increase our faith. 
This is Luke 17. When he says, increase our faith, the disciples are saying, give us faith to forgive people that hurt us. And the scriptures say we have been sanctified and we are being sanctified and we have love because he first loved us. First John says, we love because he first loved us. And then thirdly here under the power of God is the hope. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So we'll, we'll come back to that maybe. So we see here the power of the gospel and the process of how the gospel spreads the process of how the gospel spreads. Basically, look at verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you previously heard. So, conversion is not automatic. People have to hear. We are time-bound creatures. Election does not just happen. We are, they have to hear. Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul said in Romans, how can they hear without a preacher? And the Apostle Paul says, you heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. He doesn't mean it's already gone to every people group in the world, but he means wherever the gospel goes, it bears some fruit. And it increases. Wherever the gospel truly goes in the world, it breaks forth and bears fruit. And he says, you look at uh, the rest of it. It's constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras. So there had to be hearing and understanding and learning. This is a process of the word of truth, the gospel, and when it goes out. It's a process, just like every pastor knows, teaching his church. It's a process in helping people. When I deal with Iranians, can you imagine their whole worldview is an Islamic worldview? They don't know anything about historical theology. Not only do they don't know the Bible, they don't know church history or historical theology. Um, and it's a big task to help them understand uh, these things, especially nowadays with all the modern woke stuff. Um, it's, it's a big challenge. We had a whole session by Zoom, several sessions, trying to help them understand a biblical response to the transgender movement. So the people had to hear, and then it's a process of understanding. Um, we don't know the point when God converts a person. But we know that's true, that there comes a point in time when a person, their eyes are open, they're awakened, they understand sin, they understand the basics of the gospel, of who Christ is, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and they repent and believe. But the Bible also teaches that it is a process. The word of truth, the gospel, has to go out 
in process of evangelism. Sometimes it takes pre-evangelism and apologetics and discipleship and suffering with people, struggling with them, being with them, uh, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So there's a process. Um, and then the people of the word of truth, the gospel. In verse 1, Paul mentions himself. He's an apostle, a sent one. There are no more big A apostles like the 12 apostles and Paul and his missionary team. But the gifting of being a sent one, which is where we get our modern English word missionary from the Latin translation of apostle. Uh, missions, missionary, a sent one, missiles. We have English words like to send, a missile, mission. These are words that communicate churches send missionaries. Uh, and so Paul is one of the ones God uses on his team, but he's not all by himself. He's got Timothy with him. Timothy may have been the one that actually wrote this out for him. Uh, and then chapter 4 he lists from 7 to 18, he lists a lot of different people. Tychicus and Onesimus and Barnabas and Aristarchus and Barnabas and Mark and Epaphras and Justus and uh, Nympha, who was probably a rich widow lady who opened her house to the church and the house church. And that takes a lot of work, a lot of service because they always had a meal when they met they had a full meal, and then at the end is when they would have the Lord's Supper. And they would take, I love the Iranian bread and the Turkish bread that's flat. And you can, before everybody, you take a big piece when you do the Lord's Supper, and you rip it and explain that Christ's body was ripped and given for you, torn for you, um, and take the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine or grape juice. Um, so, going back to chapter 1, I want to talk a little bit about faith, uh, where he says, we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, faith includes justification, but also we grow in our faith. We grow in learning to trust God through trials and tribulations. Um, I think one of the best descriptions of faith is by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He, uh, not everything that C.S. Lewis wrote was true or biblical, but a lot of it is, and when he gets it right, he really gets it right, in my opinion. He says here, now faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. The rebellion of your moods against your real self, that relates to Colossians 3, is going to come anyway. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you will never be a sound Christian. Consequently, we must train the habit of faith. And then he goes on to talk about reading Scripture and reading creeds and prayers, daily scripture reading and prayers and church. 
to feed faith, to grow in faith. But this, this was very helpful to me, is we have to learn to tell our moods where they get off. We have to learn to speak to our moods, speak to our discouragement and our depression. And I, it's a process, though. I had to do it every day for the last almost four years. When we, we just got, you know, Amazon is always coming in and going, do you want your photos? And I clicked yes, and then now every time there's a pause for after a few minutes, our photos come up, and Blake is there, and I start crying. Started crying last night for a few minutes. We have to tell our moods. Our, uh, the, the battle is between what our reason, that is, when we heard the word of truth, the truths of the gospel, our reason, our mind, our thinking accepted those truths and the Holy Spirit awakened faith in us and we have to keep on going back and telling our moods where they get off, telling our imaginations where they get off, telling our feelings that they're not right. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a whole book on this called Spiritual Depression where he goes through Psalm 42. Calvin also has a good comment. I lived in Mark 9.24 for the past three and a half years. Sometimes I, you know, I, I did my study, I, I prepared, and I taught the Iranians, but when I'm all alone, I had to say it, with that father in Mark 9.24, I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe but help my unbelief, oh Lord, that means, oh Lord, and cry and cry and say, I do believe, help my unbelief. Uh, Calvin says this on his comment on this verse, our faith is never perfect. It is our duty to shake off the remains of infidelity that adhere to us. That's kind of like what C.S. Lewis said. Tell your moods where to get off. And Calvin says, it is our duty to shake it off. Shake off those remains of infidelity or unbelief or doubt. When the Bible says, don't fear and do not worry, but pray, he's not saying you're going to be a robot and you never have fears or feelings of fears or feelings of worry. He's saying when you do have fear, when you do, because you're going to, we all do, we're human. When you do worry, turn it into prayer to God. And when you do fear, turn it to trust in the Lord. This is really a major part of Connie and our uh, journey over the last three and a half years. I, when I visit Blake's grave, and you really think about death. And it's weird, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. Um, because, you know, when my parents died, that was normal. They were 74 and 81. And of course, it was very sad, and I cried then, but not like now when your son does that and when he does it by choosing. Suicide, it's very heavy. And so visiting his grave, you know, I found myself wanting to rebuke him. I remember Pastor Butch said, yeah, when we get to heaven, we're going to spank Daniel. 
and, I, and then I go, okay, Lord, I know I can't talk to Blake. I can't feel him. I can't see him. And I can't feel you or see you. This, this stone is here. The trees are here. The creation is here, which tells about you, but you're not here. Your spirit, you're unseen. And I would always remember those verses where Moses wanted to see God's face in Exodus 33, and God said, you cannot see my face and live. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus enfleshed the incarnation, shows us who God is, shows us the Father. By the way, uh, just a side note on, since today is 4th of July, um, I wanted to say something about where he says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the fatherhood of God, the doctrine of the Creator is very important. Athanasius, when he wrote that famous book, on the incarnation of the Word, pretty soon he starts going back to who is the Father, and he quotes from Jesus in Matthew 19. Jesus said, from the beginning, the Creator created them man and woman. That was so exciting to find this. Uh, quoting Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus did. So Jesus teaches this, how important it is to understand Christ is the eternal Son from all eternity, existed as the Son with the Father, and so does the Holy Spirit. But the fatherhood of God, and I want to get to uh, my notes here just in case I uh, forget something. Think about God the Father, God the Creator. Uh, Gary DeMar makes this comment, no deist would ever describe God as the supreme judge of the world. That's what the Declaration of Independence says, which we celebrate today. The deist would not say the supreme judge of the world, or it says we rely on the protection of divine providence. The phrase, the laws of nature and nature's God is there. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That goes back to Genesis 1, that all of us, Acts 17, all, of, all humans were created from one blood or one couple, Adam and Eve. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The worldview of the founding fathers of the United States was definitely, they might not have been born again, and some of them might have been deists or liberal Christians, and some were evangelical, but it was definitely a Christian worldview of the reality of the world, of history. They believed in the one Creator the, and they believed in creation. They believed in man and woman and marriage and families. Uh, even though 
These things have taken over 200 years to the, the devil and the unbelievers are constantly fighting against the Christian worldview. So when the apostle says, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and when we say, Christ is my life, all I have is Christ, that means the only way to get connected to the Father is through Christ. And when we, are re when we receive Christ, we receive the Father and the Holy Spirit, the true God of creation, of reality, of the universe, of the world, is the Holy Trinity. And the Trinitarian theology comes through here in this passage. Um, so we've seen the power of the word of truth, the process of the word of truth, and the people of the word of truth. And we need faith to keep on telling our moods and our feelings and our imaginations where they get off. Um, we see here in the book of Colossians how the church spreads into new areas. And the challenge is to accept what the Apostle Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake in my flesh. I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We don't know the future. Are we ready as true believers to share the gospel in love and be willing to suffer for it? I close with chapter 2, verse... 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And then later, or in chapter 1, he says that he made peace through the blood of his cross. Chapter 1, verse 20. Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. And this is what we're going to celebrate in a few minutes. We're going to look back and remember the once for all powerful atonement of the cross and the resurrection. And praise God the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The, the bloody death of Jesus, the bloody, violent death of Jesus where He took on the justice of God against our sin, the wrath of God against our sin, cleanses us. That's, it's a, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin is a, uh, is a short phrase called a metonymy, meaning the everything in the atonement cleanses us from all sin. His substitutionary death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity to share from Colossians. 
Thank you for the truths in it that help us deal with the assault of our culture, the assault of big businesses and the coalition of government and businesses and um, universities and education as coming against the worldview of God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit who works behind the scenes converting people and inspired the Scriptures. Just last night, I saw a little clip of Scotland and how John Knox said he wanted everyone to read the Bible, and eventually, for a while, Scotland became the intellectual center of Western Europe in math and science and medicine and all sorts of areas. And even, I think it was Voltaire in France, said that Scotland was the uh, intellectual center of Europe at that time. Lord, help us to set our hope on Christ and heaven. Which I forgot to mention, C.S. Lewis also said, those that had their minds on heaven, on the next life, were the ones that made the biggest impact in this life. The evangelicals who fought the slave trade. The apostles who started the whole movement of converting the Roman Empire. I think of William Carey, who not only preached the gospel in India, but also fought against the Hindu tradition of burning a widow after their husband died, on the, burning them alive on the pyre. And today, India has a stamp commemorating William Carey, the evangelical missionary, Baptist. Lord, thank you that set your mind on the things above. We set our mind on Christ and who you are and all that you are for us. And we ask you to send us out into the world with the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere and to love others, to forgive others, and be willing to suffer in Jesus' name. Amen.